you, but he shall be in you. And we read about how when the Holy Spirit came, Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Then it was some time later that those disciples were sent into an upper room waiting to receive the promise of the Father. They received what we refer to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not just in them at salvation, but was upon them for service. And we see the Holy Spirit turn the lives of the apostles upside down. Then we see those apostles went out into the marketplace preaching and praying and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and the resurrection of the Messiah. We learn how in Acts chapter 4 they were imprisoned because in Acts chapter 3 a man who was lame at a gate for many years was healed by the power of God. And the disciples were told no longer to preach in the name of Jesus. And those same disciples who had found themselves in the upper room found themselves crying out to God for boldness to preach the word of God amidst the persecution, amidst the things going on in their life. And what happened is Acts chapter 4 records that those disciples who were filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 received a refreshing in Acts chapter 4. And last week we learned that God doesn't believe in once filled, always filled. Hallelujah. you got to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. There's one initial experience, but then he wants us to continue to be refilled and refreshed with the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you're in this room this morning and you've never experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, but I just want to tell you that there's no high like the most high. There's no high feeling like when Jesus encounters your life in a way that you can tangibly taste, touch, and sense the presence of God upon your frail human flesh. It's amazing. Maybe today the power of the Holy Spirit will rest upon somebody. I'm telling you, whatever you're hungry for today, God can meet your needs. But today I want to talk to you about a different element of this Holy Spirit movement. We saw last week the Holy Spirit upset the system because it was the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin that were upset because the Holy Spirit came in and totally reorganized everything that they were doing, bringing the invalidity to their message and highlighting the name of Jesus. This week, I want to look at how the Holy Spirit changed cities. I want to see how the Holy Spirit changed cities and turned nations upside down. I've entitled this message this morning, if you're a note taker, Upsetting the Apple Cart. Upsetting the Apple Cart. How many of you have ever heard the phrase before, don't upset the Apple Cart? Well, I've told you this before, and I will tell you again. I love studying the historical background of phrases. And upsetting the Apple Cart actually dates back to Rome. They would have mules, donkeys, or horses that would actually be yoked up to a cart where they would sell the apples out in the city square. And occasionally some kid would come run through and pinch a donkey on the tail or do something crazy and it would cause the horse to kick and the buck and all of those things. And a lot of times the people would cause their, their apple carts to would dump all of the produce out in the street, bruising the apples, causing them to be useless. And, of course, the children would get in trouble or sometimes it was some other disturbance that the horse would have to deal with or the ox or donkey or whatever it was. And it would just cause a, an upset. So this phrase, upsetting the apple cart, it comes with the connotation of disturbing the peace. It, it comes with the connotation of upsetting the status quo, the normal the mundane. Everybody say the normal. 
You know, I don't know about you, but I believe the Holy Spirit needs to upset our normal. I believe he needs to upset our apple cart. I believe he needs to get right down in the middle of our business and turn our whole world upside down. You know, I was thinking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And I heard a statement a few weeks back that just really grabbed me by my coattails and shook me to my core. Here's what it said. Great man of God said this. He said, I wonder that at the rapture of the church, would many people even realize that the impact of the church was missing? Because much of what we do can be done without the reliance of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when we gauge our effectiveness, when we gauge what we do, how much can we do based on our own strength? How much can we do based on our own intellect? We, we, how much can we do in our day-to-day with our teaching and our singing and our preaching and our preparing? Can we do without the direct activity of the Holy Spirit? In other words, what I'm trying to say is, could it be that we've learned how to do church? Y'all don't help me preach this morning. I said, what if we have learned to do church? What if we know when to clap the right time, when to shout the right time, when to take the service the right time? What if, but I'm here to tell you this morning, we need to rely not on the arm of the flesh, but on the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to take control of our lives once again. So I ask myself the question, in our own community, if our church was no longer in existence, would our community even miss our presence? In the midst of our absence, would what we do have such an impact on our community? Would our community even miss what we do? See, I believe this morning there are world changers in this room who God is waiting to ignite with your purpose to turn the world upside down. I've asked them to put a picture of the screen on the screen this morning of a couple people. The first one that I have is a man that many of you may recognize this picture, you may not. It's a man by the name of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a professional baseball player. Billy Sunday was extremely eccentric. He has a charismatic personality. He was a life of the party. He was not formally educated. He was drafted into the ball field, and he got saved and radically encountered Jesus Christ. Billy Sunday later went on to become an evangelist on the evangelism field. He was ordained with the Presbyterian Church, although he was not a Calvinist. Uh, He was somewhat more of a charismatic, and his preaching drew multitudes. On the course of Billy Sunday's life, his ministry was uh, estimated to have reached somewhere between 750,000 to 1 million souls came to Christ under Billy Sunday's ministry. What was so significant about Billy Sunday? Billy Sunday was an apple cart upsetter. It was in the middle of the 1930s, in the middle of uh, when all of the kind of crazy things were happening in America. Billy Sunday got a word from God to preach the gospel without compromise. 
And it was during this time in our nation that there were a lot of moonshiners and there were a lot of distilleries and there were a lot of alcoholism that was raging in Billy Sunday's day. And Billy Sunday recognized that alcohol and alcoholism was tearing up families, destroying homes, and debilitating communities. So Billy Sunday began to preach repentance and he began to preach Jesus. And what happened would be every city that that Billy Sunday went to, the bars would have to shut down because of the people who were being converted by the message of Jesus Christ and his delivering power outside of the bars and outside of the pubs. It got the attention of the legislative people because they began to mess up the tax dollars of the city and all of the corruption that were behind the scenes in this. And, and Billy Sunday, they would, they would put a little fire behind him and he would move to the next place. And he became known as the preacher in the middle of the prohibition that caused the alcohol bottles to dry up. Billy Sunday was a world changer. He was sold out for Jesus Christ, and he had one message, Jesus saves. And Billy preached under the anointing and the power of God, and people came to hear him. Sinners loved him. It was the religious folks who didn't like him. It was the established church that didn't like him. It, was the, it were the, the people who were involved in the immorality and the higher-ups that didn't like him. But guess what Billy Sunday did? He disturbed the apple cart. And he wasn't famous in the eyes of men, but he was famous in the eyes of God. wonder what it would be like today if God raised up another Billy Sunday. What if there was another person, another man, or another woman anointed by the Spirit of God who would rise up and speak out against the injustices of the world, who would go to the pot shops, come on somebody, and the, and the, and the, and the alcohol places, and preach that men and women can be free from their addiction and free from their stronghold. You say, oh, pastor, whew, that's too crazy today. That's why we don't have maximum impact. Could it be that more Christians are inside the bar than outside the bar? Could it be because we've become more, uh, more complacent and more compliant with the intoxication of the wine of the world than to be intoxicated by the spirit of a living God? It was Paul who said in Ephesians 5 verse 18, Be not drunk with wine which leads to excess, but be filled with the spirit. And I'm telling you, when you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't need Smirnoff. Come on, somebody. You don't need Coors. You don't need Budweiser. You don't need wine of the world. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Why? Because when you take those things into your body, you drink the bottle till it's empty, and you become emptier than the bottle, my friend. But only Jesus can satisfy the longing soul. God, give us a Billy Sunday who will preach the gospel to a people who will turn cities upside down. Friends, the only reason why crime and addiction is raising in our city is because there's supply and demand. 
The only reason sex trafficking is so prevalent in society is because of supply and demand. And we've tried to focus on the symptom, but you got to focus on the root issue. And the root issue is man's heart is wicked without Jesus Christ. We live in a society who are so enamored with self-pleasure and self-help. But friends, let me tell you something. The gospel of Jesus Christ wants us to die to our flesh so that we can live to everlasting life. We need more people like Billy. His ministry was short, but it had maximum impact. Whoo, Jesus. Somebody asked Billy Sunday, they said, Billy, said, what's the secret to stay hot for Jesus? What's the secret to not backslide? I love what he said. He, he calls it the principle of 315. He said, here's what you do if you don't want to backslide. He said, first thing, do this. Number one, he said, you spend 15 minutes a day at least, not only, but minimum, 15 minutes a day talking to God. Uninterrupted intimacy. Number two, you spend 15 minutes reading God's word and allowing him to talk to you. And he said, number three, Spend the minimum of 15 minutes talking to somebody about Jesus. He said, if you do those three things in your life, you will stay hot and emboldened with the fires of Pentecost. And my friends, I'm telling you right now, the Holy Spirit turned Billy Sunday's life upside down. And in turn, he turned the culture upside down. I wish to God this morning the church would become so infired with the Holy Spirit that we would no longer allow the culture to change us, but we would change the culture. Billy Sunday was a man of God. Here's another one. Many of you may not know this man, but maybe some of you do. His name is... John Wesley. John Wesley was the founder, him and his brother Charles, of the modern Wesleyan movement. We call it the Methodist churches. You may not know this about John Wesley. John Wesley was baptized in the Holy Spirit. John was a powerful man of prayer. He was a powerful man of fasting. And if you were raised Methodist or you grew up Methodist, you understand that a lot of the rural churches, like where I grew up in South Arkansas and Southeast Arkansas, they, they would have more than one pastor or, or more than one church for each pastor. So it was not uncommon for me to see this, that there were, this pastor would be at this church on the first and the third Sunday, and then he would be at the other church on the second and fourth Sunday because there was something that was established uh, in John Wesley's early ministry, and it was called the circuit riders. And what they would do is they would take the gospel to cities on horseback, and at, at the moment there weren't enough churches, or enough ministers, rather, for churches, and so they divided it up like that. So they circuited cities, and they, they, would, they would travel and preach. And so John did that in the early days of Methodism, and he was preaching against the um, some of just the false doctrines that had came up in the world and, and he preached on justification by faith. And so what happened was, was that he went to the church and let me tell you, here's a little bit of John Wesley's resume. Are you ready? On, in uh, 1738, Sunday morning, May the 7th, he preached in St. Lawrence's at the church and he was, not at, he was asked never to come back again. 
Sunday p.m., same day, May 7th, he preached at St. Catherine Cree's Church. The deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday a.m., March 14th, he preached at St. Anne's. He said, I can't go back there either. All of these are out of his journal, by the way. Sunday afternoon, May 21st, preached at St. John's, kicked out again. Sunday evening, May 21st, preached at St. somebody else's. <laughs> he forgot. He said, Bennett's maybe. The deacons called a special meeting, said I can't come back. 19, or 1739, Tuesday, May the 8th, afternoon service. I preached out in a pasture in Bath, and a thousand people came to hear me. Sunday, September 9th, I preached to 10,000 people three weeks in a row in Moorfields. What am I trying to tell you? John Wesley would be, uh, he would roll over in his grave today if he knew the state of his current movement. How the Methodist church is divided as a whole. They're about to split, by the way, on whether or not you ordain homosexuals into the ministry. And John Wesley preached against sin. He preached righteousness. He preached confession. And what happened was, was that he took the message to the church and the churches kicked them out. The city's officials got upset with them. And guess what happened, my friend? John Wesley went out to a field and said, if I can't preach in the church, I'll preach to the donkeys. Hallelujah. And guess what happened? The people came to the field. You don't have to advertise a fire. A fire burns, and people will see a fire when it's burning. And John Wesley came, and he preached, and look at his impact. Even though his movement has splintered, his legacy still lives on as Methodism has touched the four corners of the earth because he was willing to upset the apple cart. What does this have to do with anything? It has everything to do with everything. Because in our text, in Acts chapter 16, we see Paul and Silas doing what they were faithful to do, being found at a place of prayer going about their day, coming against demonic forces, and ultimately finding themselves in a dark prison cell. They were considered troublemakers. Everybody say troublemakers. I want to I I read another passage back in our original text with us real quick in Acts 16, if we can do this one more time. Look at this verse 20 with me. It says, And they brought them to the magistrates, and they said, these men being Jews, they exceedingly trouble our city. These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city, teaching laws and customs that are unlawful for us Romans to receive. In other words, Paul and Silas and the rest of the disciples were living a life of assignment outside the four walls of the church and what they found was, was that when they were uh, going along the way, they were causing problems. But as I was looking at our passage, and actually in all of Acts, there are four things that I recognize that are characteristics of people who are apple cart upsetters or world changers. Four characteristics that I see in the scripture, four characteristics characteristics that I saw in John Wesley's life, four characteristics that I saw in uh, Billy Sunday's life. I could go on and on and on and on of people in biblical and modern day history who upset the apple cart and caused chaos in their city leading to revival. But here we go. Are you ready for this one? Here's the first characteristic. Number one, they were people of prayer. 
They were people of prayer. Billy Sunday was a man of prayer. John Wesley was a man of prayer. And of course, according to our text, Paul and Silas were men of prayer. Notice that Acts chapter 16, verse 16 says, Now it happened as we went to prayer. In other words, they had a set time, set place, set appointment. They were going to the temple. They were going to the place to pray. And one characteristic of people who are going to change the world and turn it upside down is that they have to be people of prayer. I believe, and I'll say this time and time again, I believe the number one thing that is lacking in most of our church today, and I'm speaking worldwide, nationwide, not just locally, is prayer. We pray when we're sick, we pray when we're in trouble, we pray when we're in crisis, but I'm talking about consistent prayer. I'm I'm talking about the type of prayer that just simply deserves and and desires to um, simply sit at the feet of our Savior. The type of prayer that is just simply desires to get close to the one who paid for our soul. I'm talking about the type of prayer where we allow God to hear our heart and in turn he hears our heart. He gives us what we need. I'm talking about becoming a person of prayer. A common thing of the spirit-empowered church is praying to God fervently. Here's a note I want you to get this. If you're going to change the world, it will only be done through prayer. If you're going to change the world, and the world, my friend, needs changed. If you're going to change the world, it will only be done through prayer. You need to hear this. Changing the world will not be done through cool music. Changing the world will not be done through cool dress. Praising the world will not be cool by state-of-the-art technology. All of those things are great. They're tools, whatever. But changing the world only happens by prayer. Jesus Christ was a person of prayer. The patriarchs of our faith were people of prayer. David was a person of prayer. Paul was a person of prayer. Peter was a person of prayer. Timothy was a person of prayer. No man is any greater or effective than he is his prayer life. You need to hear me this morning. Nobody is as great or effective as their prayer life. Show me anybody in ministry and I can tell you how long they pray. Because there's something about prayer that that causes the anointing to be deposited on somebody's life. If we're going to change the world, my friend, we're going to do it through prayer. Here's the second thing. second thing was this. They relied upon the power of of the Holy Spirit. This is so important. Paul and Silas are going to prayer. Right? All of a sudden a woman pops up and scripture says she's a soothsayer. In other words, she's working for the wrong team. She has a spirit, a familiar spirit, the Old Testament calls it, on the inside of her. Because, you know, demons are spirits too. And they know things about people. And they, they, they are there, they're present. Just There's angels and there's demons, by the way, if you didn't know that. And so anytime somebody talks about, oh, I, I, I had a dream and somebody visited me in my dream. No, 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 the Bible condemns necromancy. The Bible condemns necromancy. People aren't coming back to you in the dead, talking to you in their dream. That's not God. You say, what about Jesus? Jesus isn't dead, he's alive. Amen. Somebody need to hear that this morning. I don't care what your grandpa came back and told you, that's not Jesus. The Bible says that when they've crossed over, there's no crossing to and fro. When when Saul tried to call up the witch of Endor, it was a familiar spirit. It was not a good thing. 
And so I want you to understand that this woman was possessed with a genuine, she wasn't one of these BET late night 1-800 number hotline psychics. She was really a for real psychic with a spirit. And much like a pimp would pimp out a prostitute and cause her to bring in money, this woman was not prostituting her body. She was prostituting her third eye spiritual gift, if you want to put it that way. And she would have to bring her masters back the money from her gain and Paul and Silas were traveling along the way and all of a sudden this woman spoke up and said these are the men of the most high God who show unto us the way of salvation you may sit there this morning and say pastor what is wrong with that I can tell you what's wrong with that she was saying the right thing with the wrong spirit she was not trying to glorify God she was trying to get them arrested she was trying to get them beaten, and, and actually it, the, the, the plan succeeded. And, and so Paul was annoyed in his spirit because he was a man of prayer. Somebody say prayer. Because when you're a man or a woman of prayer, it heightens your sensitivity to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When you're a man or woman of prayer, you're not frightened by the demonic. You're not frightened by the supernatural. Why? Because you can discern what the enemy is trying to do. And Paul knew that this was not some normal girl. She was, they were being tormented by a spirit. And so what did Paul do? He commanded it to come out of her. And guess what happened? The girl was delivered. And much like Billy Sunday caused the taverns to be dried up, this woman's master's pocketbook was now dried up. And somebody was mad. Here's what I want you to know this morning. If you're going to be effective against the strategy of the enemy, we must rely upon the Holy Spirit's power. If we're going to be effective against the strategy of the enemy, we must rely on the Holy Spirit's power. I'm going to tell you, if you're going to upset the apple cart, if you're going to be bold for God, you will not do so without opposition from the enemy. Let me tell you, the devil hates the message of the gospel. It is counterculture to everything Satan offers us. Uh, the world offers us peace. The world offers us all of these things. And, and if we just follow and bow down and worship what he wants. And God offers us peace as well. And he offers us safety and contentment. But it's different. It's a counterfeit what the enemy's offering us versus what God offers us. But you and I have to have the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to be able to discern the strategies of the enemy. Come on, somebody. I want to be very clear. What I'm referring to this morning is living a spirit-filled life other than just on Sunday morning. I want you to know something. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are not just for inside the church. They're for outside the church, in the marketplace, on the schoolyard, in the car, on the phone, in the counseling session, whatever you're in, they relied upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you and I are going to do anything for God, we are going to have to learn to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the third thing. They lived on assignment. They lived on assignment. Look at verse 20 with me of Acts 16. 
He brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. Verse 21, And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Now, I want you to pause right there for just a moment. And I want you to understand this, because here's where it's important. They were out in the marketplace. They were out in the marketplace. They were out in the world, doing their thing, going about their business. But they had a revelation. They lived with the reality that our relationship with Christ isn't just about Sunday. It's about every day. Come on, somebody. I'm going to tell you, if you only focus on in here, and in here is important, but if you only focus on in here, you will not make maximum impact in the world. I'm going to tell you, it's a tragedy if the people you work with don't know that you're a Christian. If you're not bold enough to tell your coworker about Jesus Christ, if you're not bold enough to open up your mouth against injustice, listen, your job ought not have to find out that you're a Christian on accident. Come on, somebody. They ought not have to find out uh, some other kind of way. That doesn't mean you have to be a Bible thumper. It doesn't mean you have to shove the Scripture down their throat. But it does mean that you live on purpose and you live on assignment. You live not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What am I trying to say? They live on assignment. In other words, Paul and Silas, their apostleship, their discipleship was not tied to a time clock. They didn't serve Jesus from 9 to 5 on Sunday and clock out and go hang with the homies. They lived their life on assignment every single place they went. It was John Wesley who coined the phrase the world is my parish. Because in the Wesleyan church, they assigned the ministers to a parish that was in England, like when I lived in Louisiana, Webster Parish, Livingston Parish. We would call it a county. They would assign them to a county. And somebody asked John Wesley, where is your parish? He said, the world is my parish. What was he saying? I'm not just concerned about us four no more. I'm not just concerned with me and mine. My assignment is that I'm focused on the big picture of the world who are lost and dying without Jesus Christ. And John Wesley had a national, international impact because of this mindset. And Paul and Silas had the same thing. See, they didn't simply wait for people to come to the temple or to the synagogue to talk about Jesus because they were living on assignment every single day. How much more Would the world be changed if our people lived on assignment? Oh, come on, somebody. I'm telling you, if we're going to change our city, we must be intentional about living our faith outside of the church building. We must be intentional about living our faith outside of the church building. That means on the football field. That means in the boardroom. That means everywhere, where, everywhere your soul, your foot touches. If you're a school teacher in the classroom, it doesn't matter where you go. We've got to live on assignment because, friends, listen to me. We don't get the option to clock out as Christians. A part-time Christian will never defeat a full-time devil. Oh, my goodness. Church, 
The days in which we live, nominal Christian partnerships are not going to make it. What are you trying to say, Pastor? What I'm trying to say is this. It's time to get all in. It's time to be all about your faith. Not one way on Sunday and another way on Monday. You've got to be willing to jump all in. They lived on assignment. Let me, let, me, let, me say it, let me say it to you like this. This is so awesome to me because there are some people. Oh, Lord, I'm going to get in trouble. There are some people who are one way at church and another way at home. But there was something about Paul and Silas's life that even as they were walking through town, the devils got stirred up. Whew, it was Charles Finney who went into the sewing factories of England and sat there and talked with the women to introduce himself. He wasn't even preaching. And all of a sudden, the sewing machines began to stop one by one as they laid their head down and began to weep and cry under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It was Smith Wigglesworth who sat down on a train uh, on a subway in England and sat beside a man with a newspaper in his hand. And the man dropped his head and said, Sir, I do not know who you are, but your very presence convicts me of my sin. That's what it means to live under the assignment of the Holy Spirit and to live on assignment for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wonder if anybody this morning is willing to live all in for Jesus. Everywhere you go in the world on assignment for him. Hallelujah. Here's the fourth thing that I find in these world changers willing to upset the apple cart. Number four, they were willing to pay the price. These disciples, along with Christ, were willing to do whatever it took, no matter what it took. Persecution, imprisonment, and even death couldn't stop them. Now, I was reading in my devotional time this morning. You know, everybody wants a good prophetic word, don't they? We want, we want the good prophetic word. Your season is about to change. Hallelujah. I sense a promotion at your job. Who the Lord has seen thy faithfulness. And he is about to add unto thee three zeros. Everybody wants that prophetic word. Everybody. Whoo! Praise God. Paul never got those kind of prophetic words. I was reading in Acts 19 and 20 this morning. And I was reading about how Agabus came and grabbed Paul by the coat and begged him not to go to Jerusalem. Said, because they're going to bind you in chains. They're going to imprison you. And Paul even makes this statement in Acts chapter 20. He says, and constantly being reminded by the Holy Spirit of what lies ahead, I count my life not as my own. He was willing to pay the price. And I'm telling you that if you're going to change the world for Jesus Christ, you're going to have to be willing to pay the price. You now I begin to think about everybody, even Jesus, right? Now, one of the tragedies about society right now is that everybody thirsts for popularity. Everybody wants to be popular. Nobody wants to be unliked, right? Nobody. Post something on Facebook, go look three minutes later, see how many people liked it. How many people shared it? Didn't enough people share it? You go take it down and repost it. I know. I've done it. Algorithms are funny. 
It's always funny. You post something stupid, you get 200 likes, and you post something serious, you get three. Point is, people do it. They sit in front of their, their, their thing, and they take pictures until they get the one they like that's perfect, and then they post that one. And even preachers have gotten in today where they want to be popular. And I understand, nobody wants to be hated. Nobody wants to be hated. Everybody wants people to like them. Everybody wants people to, to come to them. Everybody wants that. But let, let me just tell you something about history. Most of the people today that have made maximum impact on the church were not famous while they were alive. They were only famous after they were dead. I'm telling the truth. John Wesley was hated by many while he was alive. Sunday was hated by many while he was alive. Steve Hill, hated by many while he was alive. I could go on and on and on and on about the number of people who were hated by people when they were alive because of their message and what they stood for. But you know what? They were willing to pay the price of not being popular in their present generation so that they could be eternally popular in the everlasting it's important. I want you to think about this. If we're going to make maximum impact, we must be willing to pay the price. Now, we've got to make a decision that no matter if it's thick or thin, we're staying with Jesus. Right? Right? All right. No matter if it's thick or it's thin. We've got to stay with Jesus. Paul said it like this. He says, no matter what state I'm in, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be abased. I've learned to be abound. I've been imprisoned. I've been in other things. And, you know, when you read Paul's letters, you would think that he had his feet propped up on an island chair somewhere with a fruit drink, with a strawberry on the side and an umbrella. I can do all things through Christ. That strengthens me. Bring me another one of those drinks, would you? He was in jail. He was in jail. He was bound up. Shut up. So they thought. But because of Paul's persecution, out from that came... His impact. But I want you to miss this this morning as I'm getting, ready, I'm getting ready to close. But I want you to miss this. They took him. They bound up Paul and Silas. And they put him in stocks. Down here where there was a jailer. The Philippian base. In the Philippian jail. And in this culture... When you were assigned a prisoner, especially as one who's high as profile as Paul, if you lose him, it's your life. And so they took Paul and Silas and they bound him up, put him in the darkness of prison. The jailer sat out by watch. The Bible said that about midnight, you read a little bit later down in Acts 16, Paul and Silas begin to pray. They begin to praise. See, they made the most of the bad times. The, 
they messed up whenever they threw them in prison. Because they bound up their hands and they bound up their feet, but they didn't bind up their mouth. And they began to sing and pray and praise unto God. And here's what the Bible says, and the prisoners heard them. And guess what happened, folks? When they began to sing praise unto God, the scripture says at midnight, the Lord came into that prison and busted not just their chains loose, but everybody's chains were loosed. The jailer looks around frantically and draws his sword to fall on it. He was going to commit suicide rather than to to face. He thought suicide would be much more pleasant than face the persecution of his bosses. And Paul says, no, 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 we're all here. And Paul leads them to Jesus. And his household is saved. And they said, oh, you're free? Get out of here quietly. Just don't tell anybody about this. Paul sat down and took a seat. He said, oh, no. You beat us openly in front of everybody? Now you want us to leave quietly? Uh Uh-uh, let's draw a crowd. And the gospel was preached again, and the testimony of Jesus Christ was let out. What does that teach us? It teaches us that when we upset the apple cart, we may go through hard times, but God will always get the glory out of it. And what you go through, what I learned when I read Acts 16 is this, is that oftentimes we're resentful by the things that we go through because we say, God, I'm serving you. Why am I in this prison? God, I'm serving you. Why am I being hated by my peers? God, I'm serving you. Why am I being ostracized? But you don't understand the purpose of your pain may not be solely for you. It may be for other people. Because God's purpose for our life, his number one purpose, you need to hear me this morning, American church, you need to hear me. God's number one purpose for our life is not our comfort. His purpose for our life is that his will be done. And that means if we have to offer our lives and go through hard times at times for him to get glory. Paul said, none of these things move. I know what I'm facing. And I must go to Jerusalem. And I must also preach the gospel at Rome. Paul knew he had to go. Folks, here's what I'm trying to tell you this morning. That there are people here today that the Holy Spirit wants to use you to turn the world upside down. Maybe you can't think as big as the world. Think about your high school. Think about your city. Think about your job. The Holy Spirit wants to use you to bring impact to those people.